Well, good morning. We're in the midst of a series of sermons focused on the relationship that we as a church have with our city, with this culture, with the world that we live in. And it's a series of sermons that are keying off of Jeremiah chapter 29, where God tells a group of people who have been captured in a war, a war that Israel lost, Judah lost. They've been captured by the Babylonian Empire, and they've been sent out of Jerusalem. They've been sent as exiles a thousand miles away to live in the city of Babylon, the capital city of the Babylonian Empire. And so this basic idea that here was this group of leaders And when you read Jeremiah 29, it identifies them. They are leaders in government. They're leaders in the temple, in religion. They're leaders in the arts. These are the culture shapers. They're the elites, the powerful. They were, in Jerusalem, the establishment. But now they're in Babylon, and they are not the leaders. They're just one of a whole bunch of minorities, So think about the mind trip they they go through, right? You were in control. You were the source. You were the steward of the culture. But now you're in exile. You're not even super clear with the language. And so you've gone through this kind of transformation from being the establishment leadership group to being a minority group, a group that's not respected. No one's asking them for their advice or their perspective. And so God teaches this group of former leaders how to act when they've been voted out of office, when they're not the influencers anymore. He teaches them how to act in a new setting when you're the minority group, when you have little power and little influence. And we're summarizing what he teaches them to do in a phrase, the title of this series. Be a missionary community. Act like missionaries. So we're exploring in this city, in this series, how can we as a church be a missionary church? Now, in Jeremiah 29, he says to do this, you have to resist fear. And you have to resist bitterness. And you have to resist urgency. Remember, some of them said just a couple of years and we'll get back home. He's like, no. Urgency, fear, and bitterness. These are the threats to missionaries. When missionaries adopt a posture of fear or a posture of bitterness or a posture of urgency, they stop being good missionaries. Instead, what they needed to do was renounce fear. It's the thing we have to do every day, right? All the time. Renounce bitterness. We get lots of opportunities to do that. Renounce a sense of urgency. Stop thinking disproportionately about yourself and your experiences in the culture and begin to give thought to your neighbors and their experiences. And so this whole series of sermons, it's about you and me. It's about our church reimagining Christianity in America and beginning to imagine it from this new location, beginning to see ourselves not as the displaced, 
but as the missionary community. A minority community sent by God into this culture that does not belong to us, into this city that belongs to our secular neighbors. It's their city. And so to be a missionary church, to be faithful to Jesus Christ and to our city, what we're doing is we're drawing down on six practices that have shaped the church throughout generations, throughout history, in whatever city or culture it finds itself in. And this morning, we've come to the fourth of those, the fourth practice of the six. And the practice we're focusing on this morning is this, formation, growth. How do we grow so that we stop being afraid? How do we grow up? so that we renounce bitterness? How do we grow so that we are really good in this particular culture at loving our particular neighbors? No longer seeing them as enemies or threats or the conquerors or the people who moved into our homes and displaced us or moved into our government or education system and displaced us. Not looking at them like that, but looking at them the way Mother Teresa would have looked at the people who lived in the slums of Calcutta. Looking at our neighbors with hearts of compassion as missionaries. How do we become the kind of people who can pull this off? How do we grow? Turn, if you've got a Bible with you, to our New Testament reading, 2 Peter 1, verse 5. Notice what it says, 2 Peter 1, verse 5. We are to make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue. In other words... Believing in Jesus is not enough. Christian faith is not enough. We've got to work really hard at growing. Make every effort to add to your faith virtue, character. Now, this is precisely what the fourth practice is about. It's about how do Christians do that? How do Christians develop virtue? How do we become better people? How do we grow the fruit of the Spirit? How do we become disciples that follow Jesus, that know how to love well, and know how to love God well, and know how to love our neighbors well, and therefore we know how to love our communities well? Now, before we get there, before we get to the Christian approach to growth, to maturing, to growing in virtue, before we get there, let's pay close attention to the two primary ways that I think our society today grows people. The first is what you might call the therapeutic approach to growth, the therapeutic model of growth. Now, this way of growing is driven by psychology and the many wonderful and tremendous insights that we've learned through the science of modern psychology over the last 145 years. Now, this approach to growth is something that a lot of us have bought into. I've bought into it. It's it's really good. It typically views the goal of growth as formation and happiness. And the path for that kind of growth is self-knowledge. It's the cultivation of insight. 
that we have to understand our desires and what we desire and why, and that we have to learn strategies for pursuing those desires and removing things from ourselves and from our lives that diminish the possibility of those desires. And that the purpose of human life is to pursue your path. And we see this everywhere. It's fundamental in our culture, self-improvement, self-understanding, and there is something so powerful and so helpful and so good about this. And in our good but fallen world, very few of us will escape the need for counseling at some point in our life. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's not bad at all. It's just incomplete. It's just only part of what we need. A second primary way that our society today helps people to grow is what some people have labeled not the therapeutic model, but the technocratic model. This is, you might not have heard this phrase, but it's something that a lot of us in our church have also been formed in. This model of growth, it's not driven primarily by psychology, it's driven by management theory. And it typically views the path of formation not as the cultivation of insight, but the cultivation of skill. And the goal is not happiness, the goal of this approach is effectiveness. This is about learning skills, engineering skills, medical skills, um, research skills. Um, it's about becoming a person who has a certain amount of technical knowledge to be effective at a certain task. This is the model of formation that's employed in business schools, in public policy schools, in schools of counseling, in law schools, in medical schools. It's developing skills necessary so that you can read the market, so that you can advise people on their money. It's about skills producing effectiveness. Now, this is really good. <laughs> it's really good to learn how to see problems and solve them. Both of these models are good. Because we need to cultivate insights about ourselves and we need to cultivate skills through which we can serve the world. But remember, the goal of formation in the Bible is not happiness or effectiveness, it's love. And you don't learn at business school how to become a better lover, right? You don't learn in medical school how to become a better lover, right? You don't learn as a pilot when you're learning how to fly an airplane, which we want you to develop the skills of seeing problems and solving them if you're the pilot, right? It's a great thing. The therapeutic model is great. They're just both incomplete for human beings. And it's the thing they both are leaving out in our culture that's harming us in our culture. You see, in the Bible, God says the goal of the human is love. To become the kind of people who love really well. Jesus said this, right, in our gospel reading when he's asked, what is the most important thing? Seeing problems and solving them? Happiness, insight? No. He said, if I have to boil it down, if the, what is the ultimate? What is the goal? What is the thing? He said, it is to love God with all your heart and mind and soul. And it's to love your neighbor as yourself. What university teaches you to get good at that? What school in our university helps people graduate very skilled at that? 
You see, that, all I'm saying about the models in our culture that dominate us is that they're incomplete and we've got to see this incompleteness. Not that they're bad, we want the skills and we want insight. But in the Bible, God calls us to a model for human growth, a model of formation that isn't aimed at happiness or effectiveness, but it aims at love. Now, one last time, I'm a fan of happiness and I'm a fan of skill. I like them both. They are really important, but just not enough. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, listen to it again. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with what? What is the last one? What is the crown of them all? With love, right? We saw this last week in our New Testament reading, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Faith, hope, and love. These are the greatest, but man, of the greatest of the greatest is love. We were created by God for love. We need to grow toward love. That's the goal. The goal of formation in the Christian tradition is love, to love God and to love your neighbor. The whole purpose of what we're doing is the goal of love. Now, we know because of 145 blessed years of modern psychology, we are learning so much about how to know ourselves. We're getting, we're, God is giving the world such beautiful treasures through psychology. And we have learned how to train surgeons with skill and engineers with skill. We've learned how to, how to help people on their journey to happiness and to effectiveness. But what we have not done as a society is developed models of formation for love. And that's a contribution we as a church have. That's a lack in our world that the church has to fit, fill up. Now, how we know how to develop skills and we know how to aim at happiness, but how do you develop love? How do you cultivate love? The Bible says the way you cultivate love, look in our New Testament reading, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, right toward the end. If you practice these qualities, love is cultivated through habits, through practices, not insights. Insights lead to knowledge. Not through skill development leads to effectiveness. The way the heart grows in love is through habits. And that's a really hard pill to swallow if you were born around 1960 or any time thereafter. Because you want love to be spontaneous. You want love to be authentic, and it's authentic when it just happens. And so you have this stupid stuff on TV where when people are fighting in a moment of anger, truth comes out. That's the dumbest script on TV. Has that ever really worked with you? Like in deep anger, the deepest truth comes out and the relationship is healed. No, that's not how this works. Love is grown through habits, through practices. Let me show you what I mean. Go to our Old Testament passage, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. 
Listen to it again. Above all else, guard your heart, not your mind, but your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Or in the NIV, everything you do flows from it. See, Christian parents, you can guard your kids' minds, keep them from seeing stuff they shouldn't see, keep them from singing things they shouldn't sing, keep them from hearing things that shouldn't enter into their heads. But if you don't help them guard their heart, who gives a rip what they think? Above all else, guard the heart. The most important thing is to guard is the heart. You see, the Christian view is that we are what we want. Our wants, our longings, our desires, that's the wellspring from which all of our action and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate out from our heart. Our heart is the epicenter of who we are, not our brain. Our heart is. Or to put it another way, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. The mind comes at the end of this train. The mind doesn't direct the will. The mind is captive to what the will wants. And the will is captive to what the heart wants. Above all else, guard the engine. Guard the furnace. Guard the control system. And that's your heart, not your head. This is why when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He didn't say, no good doctrine. Really understand doctrine. He said, love God with your whole being. Now, of course, information and ideas and knowledge, this stuff matters. Psalm 1, right? Beautifully pictures a follower of God as someone who's a student of Scripture. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we are clearly called to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Part of God's work in the life of his people is to change the way we see by his spirit, he removes the scales from our eyes and teaches us to see reality. So yes, if you are a serious follower of Jesus, you should drink up every opportunity you can to learn more about God in scripture. Just don't think that that is the end of the game. Remember, when Jesus was asked about the most important demand that the creator places upon his creatures, his answer was we are to love. We are to love God with all of our heart. And we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. The most important demand is to align our loves, our longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and to crave a world where he is all in all. No matter how good your thinking is, if you are not loving God with all of your being and you do not love your neighbors yourself, there is work to do. How can we get better at loving our neighbors? How can we get better at loving God? The way are through habits. Habits determine loves. The primary way your hungers, your desires, your loves are developed is through habits. Habitual practice is what bends your love one direction or another. Habits, not insights, not skills. 
That is why over the course of Christian history, the path of growth has been the cultivation of practices, habits done in community. So we need to begin doing certain things so religiously that they eventually become habits. And those habits are what over time shape our hearts and our desires so that we love the right and the good and the true. And by committing ourselves to these in such a way that they become rituals in our lives and over time they become like second nature to us, that's what, as time goes by, reorients our heart, recalibrates our desires, retrains our hungers. Now, historically, there have been six sets of practices. There have been practices of the mind, of learning, and contemplation. Practices of the heart, seeking God, searching our own selves in prayer. Practices of speech, learning the ways of silence and the ways of song. Practices of body, learning both self-care and self-control. Practices of friendship, learning how to begin intimacy and learning where intimacy ends. Practices of service, learning to grow in both work and rest and letting love drive and govern these things. In the Christian tradition, almost without deviation, the spiritual model of formation has been these practices done in communities, sanctified by God, sustained over a lifetime, they will shape our hearts. You don't have to get there today. You don't have to get there tomorrow. Just get in a community and get to practicing. Now, this is why if you've been around our church very long, you'll notice that we've built our church around a structure of these practices. All through the year, we're calling our church into these practices. I kind of envision our churches like this non-cloistered, monastic, missionary community that's largely ordered around habits of weekly worship. And throughout the year, we call each other into daily prayer that we're doing it all together. We have these seasons of feast and these seasons of fasting. This is why all through the year, we're, we're like calling out to you through the Advent devotional and the Lent devotional, through our fasting at the beginning of Lent. And at the end, our feasting on Christmas and Easter, our, our tithing and our Sabbathing. We're doing this because when we form habits that are good, they build up our lives in positive ways. And when we foster habits that are not good, they break down our lives. Look, don't think about practices like a checklist, a task list. When we invite you in our church, let's all pray together for these next 40 days through this part of the Bible. Let's all fast together on Ash Wednesday. Let's all have a Lenten fast throughout fast. Let's celebrate for the 12 days of Christmas. Let's worship together. Let's meet in homes in the middle of the week. Let's just put these things into practice, not because any one of them at any one moment in time is going to ultimately change our lives, but it's just as we give ourselves to these, we shouldn't see them as burdens that you have to fulfill in order to be in this community. Instead, these are like pathways to wisdom, 
How can we help each other become people who love well? It's about becoming the kind of people who really give ourselves away and to love our neighbors and love our community. And, and we live this out and we invite others into something that's a much more joyous expression where they're discovering who God made them to be. Look, to be a missionary church, we must grow in love. We've just got to become better lovers Living in the city, in this culture, we are being formed daily by the culture. The question is, how do we counteract that? How do we as Christians grow into the kind of people who know how to love God well and love our neighbor well? And this is something we have to become. And for that, we need to pursue the kind of daily habits that help us in this. The kind of daily habits that shape our instincts so that our instinct toward our enemy, our gut instinct is forgiveness. So that our instinct toward inconvenience is patience. So that our instinct toward betrayal is faithfulness. So we've got to grow in these kind of ways. Now here's, I want to end with this. Here is the good news. The good news is we share hope that this works. To use Tolkien's language, we are sharers in a secret hope. We have this hope that is anchored in God's profound love for us, right? I mean, in Galatians, there's Paul doing his highest theology. It's so dense. It's so dang confusing. And right in the middle of all this complex, confusing stuff, he says, God loves me, and he sent his son to die for me. We have this hope that God loves this place. And he, because he loves this city, he sent us into this city. It's a hope that you experience in your own life. You know that God loves you and he's changing you. He's integrating you and he's healing you. And it's a hope that's summarized in Jesus' words at the end of Revelation. I will make all things new. And we believe that. We believe that Christ is risen that Christ is ascended, and that he will return. And when he returns, he will heal it all. He will heal all of us and all of this. And we are participating in that now by his spirit. That is the hope that brought us into the room this morning. It's the hope that's going to lead us out of this room into our city. And I'm going to tell you something you already know. Because Christ is risen, it is a hope that will not disappoint. Christ is risen. Christ will come again, and when he does, he will heal everything, and we are headed toward a stage of life that will be immeasurably better than the best season of life you've ever had. We are headed toward a stage of life where all the, where all the evil and the sorrow of this world will be fully and finally removed, including our own sin including our own shame and even including our own suffering and where we will enjoy the greatest happiness imaginable in a completely satisfying communion with the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And we will enjoy this for the age to come. We can change. We can.
Change is slow. But there is a pathway that God offers us. It is the pathway of practices done in communities like this. Let's pray.